Good morning. All right, it's working. I'm, I was absolutely convinced that the battery in this was dead, but it's working. If you want to think of that as a miracle, it's okay with me. It's probably more evidence of my stupidity in evaluating batteries. Well, 14 days ago, we first turned our attention on the topic of the believer's personal reward. How have those 14 days seemed to you? Are you beginning to see your life a little bit differently? How are you doing in investing your time and your efforts for a better reward? Well, if you're like me, the days are up and down. Sometimes I feel like I'm really doing something of lasting value And other times I look over a completed day, I put my head on the pillow and I wonder, did I serve my father at all today? Was there anything worthy of him writing in his ledger? In our first two messages, we spoke of reward-worthy service. Today I want to focus our attention on that day in the future when each of us will have our service evaluated and will have our rewards bestowed by the Lord. Let's ask him to guide us as we turn to this topic. Father, you have promised that one day we will stand before your son to be evaluated. Help us now through your word to understand that day, to look forward to it with joy, and to prepare for it with diligence. May your spirit be our teacher, and may we be changed and transformed in a way that pleases you as a result of this encounter with your word. We ask this through your Son. Amen. Well, as you know, our key text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. That is the passage that speaks most clearly of that crucial day that is awaiting each one of us. Theologians call this event the Bema or the Bema, depending on how they, tr- they pronounce it. Some call it the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. Now, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul actually identifies that day in verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now the word translated there, judgment seat, is that Greek word, bema. A bema was a raised platform, something like this podium. On top of that platform, there would often be a seat or a throne, and an official or a judge would stand on that platform or sit on the seat on that platform, and he would address a group of people. He would make public announcements or sometimes express legal judgments. When Pilate first addressed the crowd on the day that Jesus was brought before him and tried to release Jesus. 
and then a short time later, when he handed Jesus over to be crucified and washed his hands, he was standing on a bema. Well, Paul uses that same word to describe an event in our future when Christ will stand or sit on that seat in heaven and evaluate each one of us. Well, flip back now, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, our main text is verses 5 through 15. What we're going to see in this text is that Paul is going to tell us some of the details about what will happen at the Bema. Now, before we look at those details, let's think for just a few minutes why Paul even wrote this passage. Now, you remember that Paul was the founder of the church at Corinth. He founded it during his second missionary journey. He was there for about a year and a half ministering, and then he left. Now, on his third missionary journey, Paul heard that there was trouble in the church at Corinth. There was all kinds of trouble. There were problems with immorality. There were problems with the Lord's table. There were lawsuits between believers. There was competition over spiritual gifts. There were difficulties regarding the topic of food offered to idols. The biggest problem in the church was probably the problem of factions, of divisions, of people following their favorite leaders. And these problems in particular, the factionism, were threatening to... uh, destroy the unity, the functional unity of the church that is so important to glorifying God. Now, when Paul wrote the text that we're going to look at today, he was dealing with that issue of factions and divisions. Take a look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal people, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk... And not with solid food, for until even now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not You see, it was the fact that the Corinthians were picking favorites and making factions that led the Holy Spirit through Paul to reveal what we're going to see in verses 5 through 15. Now, the topic, broadly speaking, is the spiritual growth of the Corinthian believers and who should get credit for that spiritual growth. Make sure you get that. Who should get credit for that spiritual growth? I want to examine our passage by breaking it down into two parts. First, we'll look at verses 5 through 9, where Paul discusses our role in building up other believers. And then we'll look at verses 10 through 15, where Paul describes that future event in which our service will be evaluated and where he talks about the consequences of that evaluation. Well, let's look at verses 5 through 9. Who then is Paul, 
And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now, did you notice how Paul pictures the church? He's talking about the church as a whole. He's talking about the Corinthian church, but it really applies to the whole church, the whole body of Christ. It certainly applies to us. He's picturing the church first as a farmer's field and then as a building. These metaphors are very important, as we'll see shortly. Now, I see two vital ideas in verses 5 through 9, and at first glance, they almost seem to contradict each other. The first idea is this. Whenever individuals grow spiritually, God is the one who deserves the ultimate credit. That's a simple idea. I'm sure no one here would argue with it. Paul says, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but it is God who gives the increase. But the second idea seems to contradict that a little bit. It's that when any of us cooperates with God as individuals in the process of building others up spiritually, we deserve credit for our effort. Notice that Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one. Now, the point here is that it's silly to pick favorites in the church. Those who are building up the church, those who are truly building up the church, are not competitors with each other, but they're cooperators with each other. And ultimately, of course, they are cooperating with God. You see, our Father in Heaven is paying close attention to what is happening down here. He's watching how each one of us works to build others up. And that's why he promises to reward each one of us differently, because each one of us works in different ways, with a different level of diligence, with different people, and with different results. Now look at verse 9. Here we see Paul switching his metaphor. He switches from the picture of a field to the picture of a building, and I think he does that because it's a more appropriate way to picture the process that is involved after individuals come to faith in Christ. Now let's read verses 10 and 11. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. This is a fascinating statement, and there's a lot to observe here. Now, the first thing that strikes me is that Paul is picturing the body like a building. 
Do you remember last week we look at, looked at 2 Peter chapter 1? Peter called us to use everything that God has provided to us to build godly lives. You remember how he started that exhortation? He said, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, etc., etc., etc. He starts with adding to faith. Now, I think what he's doing is he's picturing the same general picture. Your faith in Christ, the fact that you have been saved by grace, by putting your trust in him, is the foundation of everything. Without that foundation, you can't build. Now, Paul uses a similar picture in, um, in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you remember that? In Ephesians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. He talks about the church as being a temple with Christ as the chief cornerstone. There's another place where Peter talks in 1 Peter about the church being built up of living stones, which we are. It's very interesting to me that in these four different places we see similar pictures, and that's evidence that the same Holy Spirit was guiding each of these men each time that they wrote. Now, all of us know that if you want to erect a building, you have to start by laying a foundation. And some of you here are builders, and you know the difficulty of laying a good foundation. Well, the only foundation for healthy spiritual growth, for any real spiritual growth, is faith in Christ. But having that foundation is just a start. To be complete and useful, a building needs a superstructure. It needs walls, it needs windows, it needs doors, it needs a roof, it needs plumbing, it needs electrical wiring, it needs all the things that go into making a building useful and functional. Now, where I grew up in New Jersey, my father lived in a very little town, and there was a man up the road from us about a half a mile who was doing something that we thought was very strange. He built an entire house by himself. He built the forms. He poured the foundation. He built the frame. He roofed it. He laid the bricks. He finished it outside and inside. And when he was done, he had a beautiful house. I don't remember exactly how long it took him, but it was something like five or ten years. And we just watched it slowly going up. It was quite fascinating. Normally, buildings aren't constructed by a single person. It takes multiple crews of people with many different skills to build a building. And the same way, building a church, and I'm not talking about the building, of course, you know that. Building a church, building up the believers, is not a one-man job. It's a group project. That's why Paul says... I laid the foundation, and another builds on it. And then he continues, but let each one take heed how he builds. Now, in the context, Paul's point is that no single individual has the right to claim all the credit for any individual believer's spiritual growth. That's what led him to this discussion. But what's interesting about that is that in the process of explaining that, 
Paul reveals to us some details about how our labor will be evaluated. Well, let's get back to the text and read verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15. Paul says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now here is where the metaphor of the building gets tricky for two reasons. The first reason is that it's easy to confuse the individual believer who is building, being built up with the body of Christ as a whole. The second reason it's easy to get confused is that it's easy to confuse your contribution to the work of building up the church with my contribution because this is a joint effort. Now let's try to sort this out. It's a little tricky, but I think we can. Now, in order to do this, I want you to imagine a single individual in our church. We'll call him Charlie Christian. Now, Charlie Christian is obviously an individual. He came to faith as an individual, but he's also part of the body of Christ. I want you to think with me through the process of how Charlie grows and lives until the day that his life ends. Well, Charlie Christian was saved when he heard the gospel from Bertha Believer. These are all corny, I apologize. As a young boy, Charlie was discipled by Tammy Teacher and Daniel Deacon. After he grew up, he was close friends with Edward Encourager. He met weekly to pray with Paula Prayer and Ivan Intercessor. He sat under the teaching of Peter Preacher. He participated in and supported the ministry of Mike and Martha Missionary. His character, his spiritual accomplishments, obviously represent the work of many different people. But let's not forget Charlie's own efforts. A lot of the credit for Charlie's spiritual growth and character goes to Charlie himself. And of course, behind it all is the sovereign working of God through his word, through his spirit, through the ministry of Christ, through all those things that he provides. Now, Charlie Christian wasn't perfect. He was active in his church. He was a good citizen. He participated in the jail ministry. He gave to support missions. He made an effort to encourage the young people in the church. He considered honesty and integrity be to be just as important in his work as he did in his personal life. He shared the gospel from time to time. He loved his wife and his kids, and he made an effort to disciple them. But Charlie Christian had his flaws. He struggled with pride and with lust and with covetousness. Some of the things that he did 
that seem to be of spiritual value or motivated by the desire to be noticed and admired. But Charlie Christian's faith was real, and he served his heavenly father in many ways. Some of these were known and obvious to men, and others were known only to God. Now, the interesting thing about Charlie Christian is that, like every one of us, he was not exactly what he appeared to be. How many of you have ever shopped for a house? Raise your hands. That can be both fun and maddening. It can even be terrifying. A house can look wonderful on the outside, but that doesn't really reveal what's on the inside. You think about the builder. What kind of materials did he use? Did he use top-grade lumber and fired brick? Or did he use cheap lumber that rots and those crummy kind of bricks that get kind of chalky with age? Did he use good heavy-gauge copper wire in the wiring of the house, or did he cheat and use aluminum? Did he spend the extra money to use the proper kinds of plumbing and pipe Or did he put in low-grade electrical conduit that was never made to carry water? Did he prime the walls before he painted them? Did he seal the concrete? Did he treat the foundation so the termites wouldn't get in? What about the contents of the house if you're buying a house that's been lived in by somebody else? Did you ever dream about this? You move into a house and you discover there's a hidden wall safe with a lot of money or gold in it. Maybe there's a treasure buried in the backyard. Or maybe there's a dead body buried underneath the house. You see, buying a house is always a bit of a gamble because you don't really know what you're getting. And Paul is telling us that, in a sense, our lives are like houses or buildings. What you see on the outside is not necessarily representative of what's on the inside. A day is coming, the day of the Bema Seat Judgment, when the true quality of our lives and our accomplishments will be revealed. When that day comes, every one of us, every member of the body of Christ who has ever lived will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to be evaluated. That's the test of fire of which Paul is talking here. Now, to keep things simple as we picture this test, I want you to imagine the test being applied to each individual separately. I want you to picture in your head a long line of believers. You're on the line. Far up ahead, you see Christ sitting on a raised platform. He's on a throne. And the line moves forward, and then your name is called. You step up to an altar in front of that platform. And there is a, it's well charred. And Christ says, place your house on the altar. And you do. You step back. And then Christ turns to an angel near the, near the altar, and he says, apply the test of fire and this angel pulls down some goggles over his head and he pops this huge acetylene torch into a flame and he 
applies that flame to your house. And there's smoke and sparks and noise. And a few moments later, it all dies down. And there on the altar in front of you is a pool of gold and silver, still cooling, and a pile of precious stones, rubies, diamonds, emeralds. These are all figurative, of course. The Lord comes down, he looks at the altar, he examines its contents, and he nods approvingly. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Behold, your reward is a large one. You have indeed earned an abundant entrance into my eternal kingdom. Well, the next person online is me. Dave Dean, put your house on the altar. So I come struggling up with this huge house and set it on the altar. It's ornate. It's architecturally beautiful. It has a fancy roof line and shutters. Everything is there. It really looks good. The angel applies the test of fire. And when the smoke and the sparks die down, I'm eagerly looking at the altar. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there. You see, my impressive house was all show. I did what I did to impress people. It was done in the power of the flesh, not the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that others weren't blessed by it. It doesn't mean that God didn't use me. But it does mean that because my motive was not to please him, I get no special reward for that service. The Lord turns to me and he says, David, enter into my eternal kingdom. You have no reward, but because of your faith in me, your place in eternity is sure. And he says those words, I think back to this passage. I think of these words. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, the picture that I've just painted for you is actually flawed. It's badly flawed. It's flawed because our lives are intertwined. It's flawed because the work that I have contributed and the work that you have contributed all go together to build up the body of Christ as a whole. It would be impossible to evaluate my works without evaluating your works. Because in an interesting way, hopefully I am contributing to your spiritual growth and you are contributing to mine. I think it's more accurate to picture that future day, the Bema Seat, of Christ as a time when the entire church's works will be placed on that altar and evaluated by the test of fire. But that leads to an interesting question. When the smoke clears and on that altar there is a huge amount of gold and silver and precious stones, 
to whom does each little bit of that belong? You know what the answer is? Our Father knows. He knows. He's been keeping track of it. There will be no confusion. That day is awaiting each one of us. Now, I want to conclude our series on the believer's reward with a few comments on today's passage, and then I want to give you a brief review of some of the key ideas that we've seen. Now, the three observations that stand out in my mind concerning the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. The first one is this. It has to do with what kinds of works of service are worthy of personal reward. What I want you to be very clear on is that what's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 does not exhaust all the kinds of things that we can do in God's service that are worthy of reward. It's certainly true that what we do to build up other believers is definitely reward-worthy, but there are other things that we do that are reward-worthy. Being a good citizen, helping those who are in need, sharing the gospel with people who don't believe is worthy of reward. Anything that we do that demonstrates in us the qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of reward because anything we do that demonstrates his qualities glorifies him. That's what it means to glorify him. So don't go away from this passage thinking that the only thing that matters is what you do to build up other believers. There are many other things that are worthy of reward. Now the second observation on the Bema Seat, Christ, uh, Bema Seat Judgment of Christ that strikes me has to do with our mutual interdependence in building our rewards. This is something that continues to impress me. It is very important to keep in mind that because our rewards depend on how we help each other to grow in Christ, building our rewards isn't a competition. This is about cooperation. And it's not necessary to know now exactly what you're accomplishing. You know, a number of you have come to me and have said, I feel uncomfortable with the motivation of rewards. I just want to serve the Lord because I love him. Nothing wrong with that. But the Lord does say, I want to give you a reward. And for that reason, it is a valid motivation. Some of you have said, how do I know? what I'm accomplishing? And the answer is you don't. So what do you do? Use every opportunity you can to serve the Lord and let him keep the books. He won't cheat you. The problem in the church at Corinth is that they didn't get this idea. The leaders of the factions wanted to take credit for the spiritual growth of their followers, and they wanted to say, that credit is all mine, you don't get any. And that's a wrong attitude. There are a couple of passages outside of 1 Corinthians that emphasize this idea, the right idea, that is, not the Corinthian approach. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. 
We're going to look at verses 15 and 16. I know this is the end of a long sentence, but I think you'll be able to follow. In verses 15 and 16, Paul is speaking of how we as believers are designed and called to build each other up. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, do you see the idea there? We work together. The goal is that the church should grow, and when every part is doing its part, we do. And you don't really need to worry about what you get credit for. What you need to do is participate. This is what we're called to. Now, the second passage is one that Don Grimm pointed out to me, and and I just love this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul had planted the church at Thessalonica. He was away for a time, and he heard about their spiritual growth, and he was pleased. Now, as we read 2.19, I want you to think about the time when Paul is looking forward to. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And we'll read verse 22. For you are our glory and joy. Notice that Paul mentions the coming of Christ. He's saying, when the day comes, when Christ comes, takes us to heaven and evaluates us at the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, you are going to be the cause of my joy. You, who I had the blessing of being able to lead to Christ and to help you to grow spiritually. Do you notice the way this passage ends? It's very interesting. What does he say in verse 20? For you are our what? Glory and joy. You are our glory and joy. We're very nervous about applying the word glory to anybody but God, aren't we? We don't want to steal God's glory. But Paul is the spokesman of the Holy Spirit here. In the same way that our deeds, when they are done in the power of the Holy Spirit, reveal to the world the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, the contributions that we make to the growth of other believers will one day reveal what we have done. And that's why Paul uses the word glory. It's interesting, isn't it? The third observation that strikes me about the Bema Seat Judgment has to do with the Father's bookkeeping and the test of fire at the Bema. This will again sound redundant, but it's okay to be redundant. Although each one of us makes our individual contributions to the building up of the body, it is a joint effort. 
as it goes up, it's impossible to know who contributed what part. But our father is like a wise foreman on a building site, and he never misses a thing. He knows who built what. He knows who put up that wall. He knows who installed that joint of plumbing. He knows how well it was done every time. We are working together, but we will be rewarded for our individual contributions. And we can trust that he won't miss a thing. Well, let me conclude our series now with a review of five key concepts that I'd like you to take with you. These are repeats of things we've seen before, but I think they're important to emphasize. The first one is this. Every believer is secure in Christ. The size of your reward, large or small, has no impact on your eternal destination. Every believer has the foundation. Every believer is secure in Christ. God doesn't take his promises back. You will enter Christ's eternal kingdom if you have put your trust in him. But that doesn't mean that rewards don't matter. Second idea is this. God has blessed each one of us with the opportunity to build a personal reward. If you're a believer... That time has already started. How long is it going to last? We don't know. None of us does. It ends when your body stops working. This means, as we saw last week, that mortal life is precious, even though in extent it's tiny, in value it's huge because it will impact your eternity. Truth number three, not all good deeds are worthy of personal reward. We saw in the first week that what we do to impress people is not worthy of reward in the Father's eyes. Only what we do out of love for our Father will accrue to our eternal reward. Truth number four, our Father is treasuring up every deed worthy of reward. He's recording our treasure. He's protecting it. He never forgets. There is no better investments you can make than building up your eternal treasure. Now, my wife and I went to the bank a week ago. They called us in. We had a small CD, and they said, your CD has come to maturity. What do you want to do with it? And we asked for a rate sheet. I know why you're laughing. You know why I'm going to say this. What can you earn on a CD today? What? There's no return anywhere. There are no good investments for money right now. Probably the best investment you can do with money has nothing to do with the bank. It may have to do with giving it away, sharing it, blessing other people, but it's not putting it in CDs. Think about investing for the long term, not the next 20 years, the next 20 million, the next 20 billion, 
a tiny investment now will pay off forever. It's a good deal. Listen to these words from the end of 1 Corinthians. After Paul talks about the resurrection, this is what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To put it another way, the investment that you make now will pay off for eternity. There's no question. It can never go sour. It can never be lost. Truth number five. The day of evaluation may seem far off, but it's coming, and one day it will be here. There will be surprises at the Bema Seat Judgment, but there will be no mistakes. I want to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. This is what the Lord says through the Apostle Paul. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come from God. Remember that our greatest reward is Christ himself. Remember that his praise is the thing that we should be longing for. Let's pray. Father, your goodness goes far beyond what we can imagine. We are indeed unworthy servants. We don't reach our potential in serving you. We waste so much time. So often we are selfish or just careless. Often we are lazy. We have such a poor perspective on both what pleases you and in the importance of using the little time that we have. Forgive us, Father, for the time that we have wasted in the past. Motivate us and change our attitude that we might not waste so much in the future. We want to build up reward, Father, but let that not by itself be our motivation. Let us be motivated by the desire to receive from you a kind word of praise, not because it tells us that we are good, but because it tells us that we have been pleasing to you. This we ask in your Son's name. Amen.